0: you're listening to the divestopedia exit strategy podcast where we interview entrepreneurs who have sold their companies and the advisors that help them we elicit expert advice from exit planners attorneys merger and acquisition experts accountants business appraisers and financial advisors all with a goal of educating you about the sales process Make sure to visit us on the web at divestopedia.com to see more of our resources for entrepreneurs who want to sell their business for the best price and terms. Whether you are thinking of selling, have started a sales process, or are post-deal, we aim to arm you with the knowledge required to maximize value and limit your downside risk. And now here's your host, Noah Rosenfarb, a CPA and personal CFO to business owners planning their transition.
1: Thanks so much for joining us today for ExitStrategySimplified.com. I've got a great guest with us, Dr. Judith Colva, a personal historian who creates beautifully designed heirloom-quality books that preserve family stories. Thanks so much for joining us today, and let's get right to the meat and potatoes. Why don't you tell me how owners should make sure their legacy is long-lasting and positive?
2: Thank you, that's a great question. Let's start by saying that we know that high net worth families understand the importance of trusts and estate plans. Well, they get it. They get that the multi-generational transfer of tangible assets such as stocks, bonds, cash, real estate, art, jewelry, their collectibles, and even their exclusive memberships is very commonplace. And we're not going to negate the importance of those tangible assets but there is an even greater and often unrecognized intangible asset, and that asset is the family story. That's the story that tells what the family has been, who it is today, and what it can be we as practitioners are all too familiar with that shirt sleeves to shirt sleeves and three-generation syndrome. Only 10 to 30% of high net, worth, high net worth families actually preserve their wealth beyond that third generation. We know that. And we're, most of us are familiar with that empirical study that was conducted by Priester and Williams. And, It concludes that this phenomenon, this shirt sleeves to shirt sleeves, is not due to taxes. It's not due to laws or restrictions or missed market opportunities or economic downturns, the mechanics of wealth, or even advisor skills. Instead, it's directly attributed to a family's failure to prepare its heirs to receive and accept the responsibilities of wealth in other words, to preserve its human capital. And because the family story identifies and operationalizes the family's distinctive heritage, it contributes to that family's ability to preserve its human capital, so to indeed prepare heirs to be financially responsible the children, the grandchildren, the great-grandchildren and beyond address that shirt-sleeves-to-shirt-sleeves axiom. I want to refer to one of the gurus in the field, Jay Hughes. He's author of Wealth and Family, Keeping it in the Family. And Jay says, Family stories are the glue that binds together individual family members. And he's worked with families for over 50 years, and he says that every family I know that is successfully preserving its wealth sets aside time to tell its story and to share its unique history. And I want to tell you a a very personal story, and I have permission to share this story. I'm going to tell you the story of Mrs. Laverne Norris Gaynor. She's heiress, Mrs. Gaynor is heiress to the Texaco fortune. And we did Mrs. Gaynor's story. We created her book. And Mrs. Gaynor at our very one of our very last interviews times together. Um, well Mrs. Gaynor cried and I said, "Wow, what what is it? What's wrong? What's wrong? And she said, You know, last night I woke up and I had an epiphany. She said, I almost didn't tell my story. So for years my children begged me to tell them my story and I was, Oh, yeah, yeah, I will, I will, I will And she said, But I put it off, I put it off, I put it off. And then I met you, and I decided, okay, it's time. And she said, now realize is that it was my obligation to tell my story. So what I can now say is that I feel very blessed. I have a peaceful heart because I know my family's legacy of gracious giving will indeed reach out and touch tomorrow. Um, And her story starts with how at 18 years old, her mother inherited the family fortune, the Texaco fortune. Um, Her story recounts how her father was responsible for Victory Gardens and how Victory Gardens, and for those um, listeners who uh, may be too young to remember Victory Gardens, Victory Gardens are how we, our country, Survived World War two that people in the United States planted their victory gardens while all the the the, the food the canned goods were being shipped overseas. And to think of that, that people didn't know that it was Mrs. Gaynor's father's idea to uh, create Victory Gardens and how they really came to be uh, that Mrs. Gaynor's father convinced his friend, Walt Disney, to give Mickey Mouse a green thumb. And that's how Victory Gardens became popular across the United States. So her story, Mrs. Gaynor's story, tells that story of her father. Um, It also tells the story of how her father, who was um, a cartoonist as well as doing other things, convinced Mussolini that he should draw that Mrs. Gaynor's father should draw Mussolini's portrait. So he talked his way into Mussolini's chamber. He drew Mussolini's portrait, and that portrait is now preserved in Mrs. Gaynor's book. Um, She told the story of how her parents went off to to to, um, Canada, and they bought a bear cub. And it's just hysterical what happened to the family, to her parents as they brought this bear cub back to the United States. They bought they got it its own room in a hotel and it got its feet stuck in the the old springs of the bed and made this horrible noise in the middle of the night and they had to go in and rescue the bear cub, and they bring it back to chicago and the bear cub becomes the mascot of the chicago cubs um her story talks about how the family her her family's fortune got two towns, one Naples, Florida, and 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 one um, a small town in Illinois through the Great Depression. Um, the family is responsible for the the Naples Pier. Um, the family preserved the wonderful heritage of um, Key an Island around the Naples area. So. When, when you look at all of that, um, it clearly goes back to how sharing stories can preserve that long and lasting legacy and make it positive. And through those, um, the preservation of that human capital that comes out through telling the family's story ensures and protects the family from that shirt sleeves to shirt sleeves and 3 generations syndrome.
1: And so when should people carve out that time to tell their story? Not just to produce the, the memoir, or video, or books, or... How often should they be telling this story? Is it around holiday time? Is it around weddings? Is it around... Where, where should this be told?
2: Yes, that's a great question. Again, all all of the above what I encourage my my clients to do. Um even if they decide not to do the book, the beautifully designed book, um I encourage them to keep a little recorder, a little tape recorder and to take that little tape recorder to the Thanksgiving gatherings, to the weddings, to to the times when the families are together and ask questions and pass that little recorder around, because then they, they do have that, that essence of the story. And what they decide to do with it, that can always happen. But the importance here is clearly to, to, to preserve it, to, to have it, to get it on tape. One thing I'll advise, another thing I advise my clients to do is um, I'll ask them, for example, if I'm making a presentation, okay let's pretend let's pretend that you had an opportunity to have one last conversation with a loved one what is it you would want to with a past loved one with a deceased loved one what is it you would want to ask that person And they start to think and they start to come up with questions. And then I'll say, you know what, those are exactly the things that your descendants are going to want to know about you. So use those questions. Write those questions down and use those questions as a basis for your conversation with your elders, with the elders in your family. And the elders don't have to be elder elder don't have to just be the, the the great-grandparents or the grandparents the the people in your family so there's not a poor time to start this even children uh, the children in families will have memories memories about their grandparents or memories about their current life so there's never a, a bad time to start this The the bad time is when you put it on the someday list and don't do it.
1: Right, and I guess like so many things. This this can end up on a list that's uh, never gets done. So how how do you encourage people to go through the process of taking the time to answer the questions? Is it something that people should kind of set aside the time and do it all at once, or is it a long process?
2: Um, it can it can be either um, when I when I work with a family um, or a business wanting to wanting to tell a story, um, we. We do that as a I'm going to say uh, in a chunk of time where that is that specifically set aside to tell that family story. And I want to go back to that someday list syndrome. That when people say, "Oh yes, yeah, someday, 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 I'm going to do this," but what happens is they don't have the the, the skills, they don't have the um, resources, and They don't have the the expertise to do it, so often they don't. And that's where bringing a professional in can be very, 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 very helpful. But what I'm saying is if they don't want to hire a professional to get it started with some of those suggestions that I made, so at least they've got that, uh, that foundation of the family story.
1: Yeah, that's great. So uh, tell me, if if families want to maintain harmony, you know, after a transaction, a lot of times they're centering their family around a business, but, you know, when there's no more business, it becomes difficult to maintain that harmony. So what would you think is the most important thing they can do to keep their family together?
2: One thing that jumps out at me immediately is to understand and appreciate those generational differences because we often have today four generations in a family. And let's just address the kids for a minute. Believe it or not, there was life before cell phones. And by understanding what that life before cell phones was and appreciating it, that can make a, such a difference in family harmony. And let me, let me just tell you a story here. I once worked with a family, and the family told its story. We did, in this case, in this family's case, we did create this beautifully designed book for the family. And when the um, younger generations read about, in this case, it was their uh, great-grandparents, who went through the the great depression who went through world war 2 and when they told about, the great grandparents told about their, the, str- the struggles they had. Um, the, the grandfather who was now, I'm sorry, great grandfather who was the, now G1 and was the wealth creator, told the story about how he walked down the streets of Detroit and he saw a sign in the window and it said, ham, five cents a pound. And he didn't have a nickel to buy a pound of ham, when they told those stories of, of what it was like to get through that Great Depression, to get through that World War One, when the now great-grandson read that story, he said, you know what, I'm not going to laugh anymore at Grandma when she takes her tin foil and she rolls it in a ball and she saves it. Where before he had laughed at her, he'd made fun of her, and he he just didn't get it. But by telling that story and starting to understand those generational differences was a, a way to maintain, one way to maintain that family's harmony.
1: That's a great story, and and so true that oftentimes people forget to be sensitive to one another and where they came from, because they, they all do come from different places, even though they're family.
2: Absolutely. And, and a tool that I love, that I often use with families to help them understand that, their differences, not only their generational differences, but their personal differences, is the Myers-Briggs type indicator. and. We go through the Myers Briggs type indicator and understand it. Understand why you're different than than I am different, and then can directly relate to examples in the family that that brings that those types to the surface. And instead of having the struggles. And the disharmony to understand and to appreciate the strengths and the synergy of the family
1: so one of the things that uh, I think you've've you've written about is ethical wills mm-hmm. and how they can influence families to you know help maintain harmony after the death of a matriarch or patriarch. Tell me a little bit about that and what you've learned and what you recommend
2: thank you the the ethical wills, just briefly for those who aren't familiar with ethical wills um, they are an age-old tradition and what ethical wills do is they assure that the life experiences do, do not disappear on one's death and ethical wills uh, were first documented uh, centuries ago.
3: Uh,
2: the first documentation is in the Hebrew Bible, and that's in Genesis 49, when Jacob called his sons to his his twelve sons to his deathbed, and he blessed them. And he attained a promise that they would bury his body in the land of Canaan where his ancestors were buried. Well, as obviously centuries uh, proceeded, um, ethical wills became no longer passed on in the oral tradition. They became uh, written. And in summary, an ethical will, unlike a legal will, it bequeathed the values, it bequeaths advice any kind of life lessons any wishes and how I think of an ethical will is a legacy of the heart what they are is they're the spiritual extension of estate plans so instead of bequeathing the uh, possessions they pass on the birthrights and blessings in the form of personal and spiritual values um, they give a heritage of, of wisdom. Uh, they talk about heartfelt matters, such as the lessons learned, any thoughts on love or advice. Sometimes they uh, there's forgiveness in an ethical will, uh, requests or uh, sometimes re- regrets or hopes or philanthropic beliefs, end-of-life requests or even uh, burial instructions. And they don't replace legal wills, but they are invaluable accompaniments that can take that cold legal document and give it heart, give it meaning, give it caring. And again, I want to tell you a story that I think will help our listeners um, understand the power of of uh, of an ethical will. I once worked with a family. And I'm gonna use the name of the uh she was the, the the matriarch of the family. The matriarch of the family was now not doing well. She had um tinges of dementia and she just was tired. She was tired of living. Well, the family had Bertha in a situation in a home that was where she was very, very well cared for with round-the-clock caregivers, nurses, and and other caregivers. But Bertha didn't want anything, anything to do with that. She was ready to check out. So as we were telling the family's story, as I was talking with the family telling their story, Um, I knew about Bertha, but I I wasn't going to be able to talk to her because the family said, oh, she doesn't care. She doesn't want to talk anymore. And they kind of just squirreled her away. And I said, well, would it be okay with you if I just went in and sat with her and just see if I could get her to talk So I went in a few days and sat sat next to Bertha and and held her hand. And um, she didn't want to get out of bed. She didn't want her hair combed. She didn't want to take a, a shower or a bath. She didn't want to eat. She didn't want her fingernails clean. She was done. She wanted to be in that bed. So we sat together for a couple of days and just kind of held her hand and you know, just talked with her a little bit. And sometimes she'd say a few things, but mostly she didn't. And then one day I went in and Bertha said, I got to tell you something. And I and this was it happened to be an African-American family and this will give some context to what I'm going to say. Bertha said, you know... Judith, when I was a young girl, I had to pick cotton to take care of my children. I had four children, and the way that I provided for them was to pick cotton. And she said, one day I was in the fields, I was picking cotton, and a big storm came up. I had three of my children sitting under a tree, and there was lightning and there was thunder. And I said to them, Children, you gotta go home. You gotta leave this field. She said, But I knew I had to get down to that end of that row of cotton. So I put my baby on the, my cotton sack, and I pulled my baby down to the end of that row. When I got to the end of the row, I fell, and I hurt my back. But I knew I had to get back to my other children. She said, so I crawled, I crawled. I drug my baby, and I drug my cotton sack and got back to my other children. That was the story she told me. The next day, I went in to see Bertha. She was sitting up in her bed, and not in her bed, she was in a chair, and she had a breakfast tray in front of her. She had her hair combed. She was had this pretty little uh, night nighty with a a bed gown, bed jacket on. She was eating her breakfast. She looked at me. And she gave me a high-five, and she said, I'm some kind of woman, ain't I? (laughs) (laughs) So we knew we didn't have many days it was it hospice was there and we knew that we really didn't have many days to get bertha to tell uh, her whole story but what we did was we did get her ethical will and part of that ethical will was her burial instructions that became very important to her she somehow knew that the family had been arguing about her funeral service and about her burial. So what she told me was, she said, and right in doing this ethical will, I don't want an open casket. She said, here's what I want. Bertha had a dog who'd been with her for years and years, and she loved that dog. And the dog was old. She said, I want my dog euthanized and then I want our two bodies cremated together, and I want our ashes spread on the path in the woods where we took our our regular walks. And she said, then you know what else I want? I want purple balloons released. And she gave instructions as to a poem she want read. She said, nothing else. That's all I want. Well, after Bertha passed, the family ended up complying with her um, instructions. They stopped arguing, they stopped disagreeing, and they did exactly what Bertha wanted. And later the daughter called me and she said, I can't thank you enough for preserving that, that, that story, that ethical will from my mom. Because talk about improving family harmony, that was the key.
1: That's a great story. Uh, I'm glad you could share it. And and I think the takeaway there is that oftentimes, uh, you know, people do this same thing and they put someone that maybe isn't 100% well and they keep them kind of shuffled away and, and they start thinking for them. And uh, it sounds like through, you know, deep caring, you were able to communicate that and pull this person out from, from hiding and get them to share. And that's such a great thing
2: well thank you and I, I agree with you and and ethical wills as we started as we talked about aren't just burial instructions they are life they can be life lessons or they can be here are my hopes for the future um, here are my hopes for uh philanthropic so uh, ed- ed- philanthropic uh, Adventures that my family will will continue or um, sometimes they're all about forgiveness either a self-forgiveness or a forgiving um, someone else they're about um, the hard lessons that i learned in my life um, so they're shorter than a full story a full memoir but there's the Again, the best way to say it, the lessons of the heart.
1: Yeah. Well, a lot of the families that I speak with, you know, they are concerned about some of those tangible things, especially the money, the monetary wealth, and leaving mm-hmm. behind large inheritances, and they're worried that that can do more harm than good. So how would you say that sharing and defining those family values can help alleviate those concerns?
2: Again, that's a you're asking great questions. Um, this is a very interesting question. And I'm confident that that you and perhaps our listeners – are familiar with the Alliance American Legacy Study, and what the, the Cliff Notes version of this study is that it's projected that within that between in the next fifty years, between twenty five and one hundred and thirty six trillion dollars are going to be transferred between generations and the most common figure number that's cited there is forty one trillion dollars well what the um, the folks at the alliance American legacy decided they wanted to do was they wanted to quantify their the hopes and the fears and the motivations for passing on this uh, needless to say substantial amount of money so they studied three thousand families And on a Likert scale, from not important to very important, 39% of the veteran generation or the great generation believed that it was the financial inheritance that was very important. Well, the heirs didn't so much agree with that. Only 10%. Of, of their heirs believed that finan- passing on the financial inheritance was the most important thing. Instead, the heirs, 77% of the heirs, believed that passing on the family values, the family life lessons, and the family stories was what was most important. And as an example of that, um, one of the families with whom I worked um, uh, one of the the women in this family said to me, you know, learning about my mother and my grandmother and their values really helps me learn about myself. It gives me the sense that I am connected. She said, I used to think that I was kind of weird because I had such values of if an entrepreneur. And that didn't come out so much in the rest of my family. And they thought I was kind of strange, particularly because I was a woman. She said, but when I realized that my grandmother during the 1800s was a mule train driver which uh, wasn't a real common uh, uh, quest for a woman, wasn't a real common um, profession for a woman, needless to say, in the 1800s in the South. And she said, and then I realized in the 1900s, my grandmother or my mother – divorced her husband because she found him in a regular, a rather, uh, shall we say, compromising position with one of the, the maids. And she said my mother wasn't going to put up with that. So in the eight nineteen hundreds, when divorce was social suicide, my mother divorced him and she took her three children. And now what was she going to do? So she found a position in an orphanage where she was the caregiver in this orphanage. And she said, so when I look back at that, I look back at my grandmother and I look back at my mother, that really helps me understand who I am and how the 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 values of my family are so important. And how they can alleviate some of these these concerns of uh, of the money, and why this is so important. So it's preparing heirs to accept the responsibilities of wealth.
1: And and do you have suggestions, but aside from sharing the stories that you recommend to families?
2: Um, in often in. Um, Family meetings. If I go into to a family meeting, um, what we'll do is we'll we'll pose questions, values-related questions, and pretty much just go around the table and and talk talk about these questions. Um, and the questions again are values-related questions. Um, what, what's is just such a basic question is what's really really important to you? If you could do anything in your life, and we we might do a a let's pretend game. If you could do anything, what is what would you do? And. I once worked with a family, um, and the son, well, it was the grandson, actually, G3 grandson. People in the family thought he was just a little bit weird. Well, in this little, what would you do if you could do anything in the world? He brought up, you know what I would do? I would go to motorcycle school well, that wasn't so cool in this family with this big, fancy family business. What do you mean? They thought, go to motorcycle school. Well, this kid was really astute. And he said, you know what? I'm going to go back to when Grandpa started the business. And Grandpa started working with an idea that was absolutely weird, was absolutely way far out. He started working with the um, auto industry, and he was a, practically a genius grandpa. And he developed this little sensor for uh, for cars that lived in the the, the the bowels or the engine, way deep in the engine of cars. And it was like, you know, when your oil light comes on, it was the little sensor that told tells the oil light to come on. Well, back when Grandpa started this, it was just a weird, weird idea. Well, Grandpa ended up doing fairly well, ended up selling the, the family business for $400 million dollars. Well, when the, the grandson brought this out to the family, that grandpa was weird, now you think I'm weird, it really brought home to the family, well, you know what, maybe motorcycle school isn't so weird after all, <laughs> that that maybe for this, this um, teenager to go off to motorcycle school, is something that we should support. So just in talking through some of those issues and and relating it to uh, the connections in the family can be very, very, very helpful.
1: So one of the other things I thought was unique about your practice is that you encourage families to create a culinary memoir. Mm -hmm. I wanted to know how you got started with that and what your experience has been.
2: Well, we all know that food is about so much more than eating that food is about the traditions, it's about the stories, it's about uh, grandma's ham uh, or grandma's turkey, or is it, uh, if we're talking about Thanksgiving in particular, is it stuffing or is it dressing? And and what was the way that, that grandma uh, or mother made that? Or, or just some family favorites, there are stories that are connected to the the tradi- to um eating so i once had a family who approached me um the matriarch of the family had passed she was known in the family as the person who had great gardens she was known as the person in the family who baked um she was known as the person in the family at christmas time who would make cookies like dozens of different kinds of cookies and give them away give them away to neighbors give them away to family members take them to uh, friends that was her how how she was known so the family wanted to honor her and we talked about well how can we do this so what we did was we took her recipes that were still in her handwriting. They still had all of the goobers. They had all of the spills. And we we gathered recipes that the family most remembered. And then we took the recipes to create this culinary memoir. We scanned the recipes still with all these goobers and spills. And then we had the people... Friends and family members tell stories that they remembered about these recipes, and then we collected pictures that went with with these particular recipes. And that was the first culinary memoir that I did. Um, so it was a tribute to the the woman who had passed, and it was this marvelous memory of her, that couldn't have been preserved in in any other way. And I can remember when her, her best friend received this, this culinary memoir, and she called me in tears and said, I have never received such a beautiful gift in my entire life. So that's how it all got started and families love it they love preserving their traditions through the idea of of food and the and the stories that relate to the 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 family traditions um of eating
1: yeah that's great i thought uh it was unique but i think it would resonate with so many families cuz food's a great part of the celebration it's a great part of when families are gathered and uh everyone has their family favorites so <laughs>
2: Yeah, let's, let's face it. Okay, it's somebody's graduation. The first thing that we ask, what are we going to have? What are we going to serve to eat? Not <laughs> somebody's birthday. What are we going to have to eat? So absolutely, mm-hmm. that's what our lives are about, Um food. <laughs>
1: So what else would you like to share with the listeners? Uh, You know, most of them are contemplating or going through an exit in their business. They've got, you know, a wide range of concerns, but especially as it relates to your expertise as a personal historian, what are some of the things that you can impart to them that they should be capturing at this time?
2: Well, I'd like to return to that Someday List Syndrome Please, please, do not put this on the someday list. It's the most valuable gift you can give to your family. Is that gift of your of your story, that gift of your memories, because you're giving the gift of your heart. Uh, let's let's face it. If we plunk down our three hundred grand for a Bentley. We drive that baby off the lot and it depreciates immediately 20%. Every year it depreciates 20%, 20%. But that, that gift of the family story is a gift that's going to appreciate over the years. So please, please don't put it off.
1: Great advice. Uh, any, anything else uh, can, maybe you could share with our listeners how they might want to get in touch with you if they have some questions or wanted to find out more about your service?
2: Thank you. Thank you for asking.
1: Can
2: you can email me, uh, judith at memoirshop, memoirshopp com. Or certainly give me a call, 954 759 4531. They want to poke around my website, it's www.memoirshop.com. And I would be more than happy to answer questions one on one, to make recommendations as to what they could, could further do uh, to avoid that someday list syndrome.
1: Great. Well, thanks so much for sharing, and uh, your contact information is, is on our website as well, exitstrategysimplified.com. Dr. Judith Colva, thanks for joining us today, and thanks for listening.
0: Thanks for listening to the Divestopedia Exit Strategy Podcast. Make sure to visit us on the web at divestopedia.com to see more of our resources for entrepreneurs who want to sell their business for the best price and terms. Whether you are thinking of selling, have started the sales process, or are post-deal, we aim to arm you with the knowledge required to maximize value and limit your downside risk. If you have any questions about today's podcast, you can contact your host, Noah Rosenfarb, a CPA and personal CFO to business owners planning their transition at 855-540-0400. Please be sure to rate us on iTunes and give us your feedback. Until next time, this is the Divestopedia Exit Strategy Podcast.